1: I've been reading letters and diaries of Civil War soldiers, both published and in manuscript form, since 1979. And in those 40 years, I have not once read of a soldier claiming to have seen Bigfoot, the mythical monster of the woods. Nor in that time have I come across a single soldier's description of a unit of African-American Confederate soldiers, or even of single uniformed black confederate soldiers not surprisingly there are no books or websites about bigfoot in the civil war as far as i know but black confederates that's another story we'll explore it with kevin m levin author of searching for black confederates the civil war's most persistent myth tonight on civil war talk radio
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Coming to you tonight from the traditional halls of the Brewster building on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or for the construction crew building the A stairwell, the month-long project that will continue to deafen the residents of this building, I guess, until they finish, and they can start on the B, C, and D stairwells. Not speaking for them or for UNC or ECU or anybody else, just myself, and I know my guests will do the same as always. It is a cold by North Carolina standards night in December of 2019. December 11th, it's our last live show of the calendar year 2019 and the fall season of Civil War Talk Radio. The holidays are approaching. I don't know what everybody's individual persuasions are, so I'm never sure whether to say Happy Honda Days or Merry Toyotathon, but whatever you follow, uh, I hope you have a wonderful ha- holiday season coming up. We'll be back with more live shows in January. I'll give a rundown of that in a little bit. Um, but of course before the holiday season comes the final exam season, and that's where we are right now here at East Carolina University. I've got a big stack of blue books I'll be taking home this evening and Uh, enjoying myself with for the next day or so. Best wishes to the students. Hope they did well uh, because although they may not realize it, we, the faculty, really want them to do well. Uh, Speaking of academia, last week I mentioned uh, on this show the surprise settlement of the case of Silent Sam, the memorial on the campus of Uh, UNC Chapel Hill to North Carolina college students who had fought for the Confederacy, anytime anything is announced at 4 p.m. on Friday, or in this case, 4 p.m. on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, it's a pretty good sign that somebody is ashamed of something and they don't want the media to give it much attention. That was the case with the uh, Silent Sam Announcement that the university had reached an agreement to give the statue itself, which is hidden away somewhere in a warehouse apparently, uh, to give it to the Sons of Confederate Veterans who didn't give it to the university. That was done by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But somehow the SCV is now involved and the university is giving them the statue with instructions to set it up somewhere not in the same county as any any UNC campus, including ours here in Pitt County. But on top of that, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is giving two and a half million dollars to the Sons of Confederate veterans, uh, which is, is really a shocking development in a lot of ways. We'll talk a good bit tonight with our guest about the SCV uh the scv have, you know has many members who are simply descendants of confederate soldiers and proud of their ancestors and there's uh nothing wrong with that but it also has a vocal leadership that endorses the lost cause interpretation of the civil war and needless to say, the history department at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill does not endorse the lost cause, nor does our department here at ECU, nor the one at UNC Greensboro or UNC Wilmington or any of these 16 constituent campuses of the University of North Carolina. But now somehow UNC Chapel Hill is about to spend two and a half million dollars to build a headquarters for this organization. Why not? choose the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center, uh, yet to be built, but one that is supported by uh, people both within and outside of academia. Uh, I'm on the advisory board, but there are many people who are not professors, who are simply interested in the war and have spent a long time learning about it and want to teach its history through this, this new project. Uh, that will be built in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, they could use $2.5 million, uh, but no, somehow the SCV has has conned the university into this deal. It's, it's really an astonishing development, and it's not dying away in spite of the late announcement. Uh, news stories are still coming out about it. I don't think we've heard the last of it. Well, enough looking back. Let's look ahead to 2020. The year 2020 is a upon us in just a few weeks, and we'll be back here at Civil War Talk Radio with new shows. Uh, our first show of the new year, and the new season, will be on Wednesday, January 8th, the 8th of January, good fiddle tune. Uh, the book is called Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. The author, uh, Cédric de Leon, is a political scientist in which he makes a case for what happens when political parties lose their constituencies. And the first half of the book is about the Whigs and the antebellum era, and how both the Whigs and eventually the Democrats lose the ability to keep their constituencies together, and the result is a civil war. Now the second half of this book then goes into the 21st century. He writes about Democrats under Obama and Republicans under Trump. We won't be talking about that half of the book on this show and indeed when i first saw the book i thought wow i don't even want to talk about the first half this is not a this is a show about civil war era not contemporary politics but one of the reasons we all study the past is to understand the present and if this author can provide a persuasive framework of what brought about the civil war and secession then uh, That seems like a useful contribution. We should talk about it and see what he has to say. And uh, if if, I don't know if I'll continue to read the rest of the book, or or if you will, but uh, we can make up our own minds about that. But we'll be talking about the historical section of his writing on January 8th. On the 15th, James M. Sides has a book called, This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. We'll follow that with Douglas Waller's new book, Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, and finish the month with Christian Keller returning to the show, his new book, The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the fate of the Confederacy. So lot's coming up uh, in 2020. You can learn about it at www. W of where you can also donate to the show. Your end of the year donations are welcome. This is a especially good time to salve your conscience for any enjoyment we have gotten from the show in the past year uh, by contributing to the Civil War talk radio book and Christmas present fund uh, or whatever it is we decide to do with the money this year. It's not tax deductible. It's not a 501c3. Don't declare it on your taxes. You can also buy books from the authors you hear about on the show uh, by clicking on the links there. That helps us out a little bit and would be much appreciated as well. So tonight we have on the show a guest returning uh, for the third time, 2006, 2012, and now back in 2019. Kevin M. Levin is our guest. His new book is Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Kevin, are you there? Great to be with you again, Jerry. Ah, oh, welcome back. Uh, remind me what what uh, I know. We talked about your day job last time. You you were I don't I think you were in a different state actually. Uh, yeah, I was in Virginia. Uh, and where are you now? What are you doing?
4: I am in Boston, and um, I'm teaching part time at a, still at a private school. So uh, I balance my time between um, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of writing, working with teachers you know, various kinds of professional development programs. Uh, so I'm still in the field of education.
1: Excellent. Uh, all, always a uh, a good field, and good that you can mix that, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. half time to to write as well. What
4: what yeah. moved you to write the current book? Yeah, you know, I started blogging back in, in 2005, and, you know, my blog, as I think you know, is called Civil War Memory, and, and early on, I was always on the lookout for topics related to the question of the Civil War and historical memory, and early on, you know, the topic of Black Confederates, uh, you know, it came up, and, you know, what I was struck by was, you know, these posts about Black Confederates would always garner, you know, not just a couple comments, but sometimes hundreds of comments, and the discussion was always lively, Uh, people on both sides of the issue sort of battling back and forth, and I was struck by just the tone of the discussion, just the extent to which people were committed to their respective views. And um, it really did seem to highlight the, the divided nature of, of Civil War memory, um, you know, 150, roughly 150 years later. And so I was, as someone interested in historical memory, uh, you know, it seemed like the, the ideal topic to, to continue to talk about. And within a few years, I started sort of toying around with the idea of writing a book. I had written a couple articles, a journal article at one point. I kept putting it to the side, but uh, in 2015, I decided I'd better do this or I'm going to regret it. And that's when I really just sort of focused on it and, um, and was able to complete the book.
1: Now, the, um, the mention of a blog brings up a, a question I want to ask and, and will I don't know yeah. if we'll finish before the first break. Uh, there was an article in uh, the academic journal Civil War History uh, a few months mm-hmm. ago. I think it was September yeah. of. Uh, uh, this is not coming as a surprise to you, I know. And, and uh, no, no. Uh, it, the article co- is called "The Internet and Civil War Studies" by Earl J. Hess. Earl has written, I think, seven or six, seven or eight thousand books on the Civil War. <laughs> it's um, hard to keep track. It is hard to keep track. He is the most prolific author since Jack Davis. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and and most of the books are wonderful. They're they're they're, yeah. they're very good, uh, and he's been yep. on the show, and I've enjoyed talking with him at conferences. But the uh, his essay titled "The Internet and in Civil War Studies" was based on a survey he did, uh, when 2012, 2013, uh, a while back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was so far back, I couldn't remember if I had seen it. And it turns out I read the article and I'm quoted in it. So, yeah, I guess I did contribute to the survey. Uh, But I didn't remember it. It was that long ago. And as you point out, in in Internet years, seven years ago is the Dark Ages. Oh, right, uh, right. uh, uh, this, This article, well... I'm, I'm telling you things you already know. Uh, for the listener's benefit, uh, Professor Hess analyzes the Internet based on a sort of anecdotal survey of some colleagues. And uh, at one point, I well, well, I don't want to talk about dirty laundry. I want to say he just doesn't think the Internet has much use for Civil War scholarship. Uh, we're talking yeah, on a I, podcast you know, about your blog.
4: Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, look. Earl Hess has has been a big supporter of mine. I, I respect his scholarship. I don't know if he was the best person to write that particular article. I don't know how much personal interaction he's had with social media and just sort of the digital world. But um, I, I thought he had sort of missed an opportunity to really engage in in many of the creative ways in which historians, and including Civil War historians, um, who are you know, engaged using social media, who are um, uh, really sort of exploring the, the ways in which, um, you know, digital mediums can advance scholarship. Um, and it, it, I think part of the problem was, of course, with the surveys themselves. As you mentioned, you know, going back to 2013, and there was a second one that I think in 2016, um, you know, you're, you're right, so much changes, and it changes very fast. Um, and it wasn't clear at all who had responded and what are the people who had responded, the extent to which they were experienced, um, you know, with the sort of social media, digital history realm. So, you know, it left a lot of questions, I think, to say the least.
1: I think that's that's a fair summary. We'll come back, talk more about that, but especially talk more about your book. Our guest today is mm-hmm. Kevin M. Levin, his book Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Access all the time.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kevin M. Levin, author of Searching for Black Confederates, Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. We wrapped up the first segment talking about a recent article in the journal Civil War History uh, by Earl Hess, <laughs> the noted scholar in which he critiqued the use of the Internet as a tool, uh, and the... The the last line in the article, uh, he quotes me saying, the Internet or its successor will become the dominant scholarly tool if it isn't already, whatever any of us may think about it. And Professor Hess then writes, only the future can reveal whether he is right. And I'm happy to say the answer is the future's here and I am. Uh, it is the dominant scholarly tool. We all use it every day. Uh, CWmemory.com is your blog. Uh, there was the New York Times Disunion series. Uh, there's this podcast that, uh, uh, that you're listening to right now, uh, everybody out there. It, it's just it's unfortunate uh, to, to look back uh, and, and, and guess wrong that, that somehow social media isn't going to be important to uh, the future Civil War scholarship, uh, and it's especially unfortunate to say anything or allow anyone to be quoted saying anything negative about a fellow user of the media, uh, uh, as, as happened to you, but I think your, your blog stands on its own, and people will continue to read it. Uh, let's move on. Uh, black Confederates... <laughs> on the cover of the book, you've got the, uh, a yeah. photograph that I'm sure every listener has seen this photograph reproduced many times. Um, on the viewer's left, uh, two seated figures. On the left, a uh, taller, uh, a young man, a boy really, holding an absurdly large uh, bowie knife and holding a pistol. And he's got another pistol. And uh, on the viewer's right, a shorter African American, somewhat older. Person with a pistol and another giant knife, not quite as big, and a musket of some sort. Um, but they're both wearing military uniforms, and one's black. So there's your black Confederate. Case closed. Uh, why? Why do we even need this book? Uh, there's you got a picture of one right here.
4: <laughs> that, that that's right. I mean, it is an <laughs> iconic uh, photograph. And I think one that's uh, easily recognizable to, to many Civil War buffs, and I think. For many people, it, it is sort of it is sufficient evidence that at least there was one black Confederate soldier. Um, I mean, what more proof do you need? As you mentioned, they're wearing uniforms and they're both armed to the teeth. Um, but it doesn't take much research to, to learn that, in fact, what you're looking at is a wonderful example of the master-slave relationship. The master-slave relationship uh, at war. And uh, on the left is Andrew Chandler. Uh, and on the right is Silas Chandler. Silas was born into the Chandler family. He was born as a slave. Uh, when the family lived in Virginia, um, in the eight, late, eight, in the 1840s, they moved to Mississippi to West Point. So Silas grew up with that family. And, uh, when, uh, Mississippi left the Union and as the, you know, troops are being mobilized, um, Andrew left home with Silas, as many other young men from the slave holding class did with. Uh, what you would have called, what they would have called a body servant. And it's an unusual photograph. There are plenty of other photographs of master and slave at war, and even many with a number of photographs with um, body servants wearing Confederate uniforms. Uh, but of course, this is the only one, um, you know, where you've got both men sitting side by side, armed, and it was likely taken early in the war. Um, and, you know, the more you look at it, once you realize it's the master and slave, uh, rather than sort of two soldiers uh, mm-hmm. in the photograph, uh, you know, you, you get a different perspective on, this, on, the, on what might have happened when they walked into the studio. A bright-eyed boy, 17 years old, uh, Andrew Chandler, probably wants to impress his family, his loved ones back home with his bravery, um, and walks into a studio and sees all these likely props, studio props, the weapons. And decides that he's going to fit as many into this photograph as possible. I mean, it really is uh, just a, a bizarre, uh, over-the-top
1: photograph. It it really is. the The number of weapons is enough for a small regiment, uh, yeah. but he, they do go to war together. Uh, and they do. Th- you, there's this curious thought of of soldiers bringing servants with them, not just officers, but even private soldiers in yeah. some cases, you yeah. say, brought, yeah. brought these enslaved uh, servants with them. So those people are mm-hmm. in a really anomalous position. They're, they're with the army, they're in the camp, yep. but they're not answering to the sergeant or the lieutenant, they're answering to their, their right. so-called owner. Uh, well, That's what do right. they do? What, if they're not soldiers, they, what do they do
4: all day? They, they do anything that, uh, that helps or assists the, you know, the owner, the master, usually an officer, um, carry out his duties. And that involves cooking, it involves cleaning, it involves getting uh, the officers' camp ready for a, a long march, um, functioning as a courier, um, foraging. Uh, so any number of things you can imagine, uh, You know what I call camp slaves. Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you can imagine these camp slaves doing any number of things. And, and you're right, they are attached to their master rather than having to answer to the military hierarchy. And there would have been thousands of these men uh, in the army at any given time, and not just body servants, but as I point out, uh, you know the the military mobilized thousands of enslaved men to do all kinds of um, jobs for the army itself. I mean, forget about the broader Confederacy, um, but just in the army itself. And so, you know, you can imagine Robert E. Lee's army of Northern Virginia in 1863 marching off to uh, toward what becomes the Battle of Gettysburg. There may have been as many as 10,000. Uh, enslaved men marching with that army, and I think when you when you acknowledge that, when you really sort of understand it, it gives you a very different perspective of what allowed these armies to function. Uh, slavery was uh, clearly the foundation of the confederacy. It was the cornerstone of every aspect of the confederacy
1: and as Alexander Stevens famously said the yeah. so these soldiers the, these uh, enslaved these camp slaves is the phrase that you use most often in the book mm-hmm. to describe this cohort. Uh, this would account then for the the bits of primary source material that one can find uh, easily yeah. on the Internet uh, where, where we see an observer describing Lee's army in 1862 or in 1863 and says, mm-hmm. oh, there were thousands of black men in the ranks. Uh, you're yeah. suggesting they're not
4: actually in the ranks in the sense of being soldiers. That, that's right, and I think what most people fail to to notice or acknowledge, and again, this is you can find as you mentioned, you can find plenty of these accounts online, and that's a whole separate problem that we can talk about the role of the internet in perpetuating this right. myth. But what most people fail to acknowledge is, is that these newspaper accounts are union uh, newspaper accounts, and you know that included Frederick Douglass's uh, newspaper uh, that published accounts of of black men in the Confederate Army, and you know, what you won't find, of course, are Confederate newspapers that uh, confirm uh, these, uh, these observations, these accounts. And I suspect that especially in the spring and summer of 1862 is when you find most of these accounts, or many of them, uh, when the two armies are locked um, you know, closely together on the peninsula outside of Richmond. Remember, this is a highly politicized time where people like Frederick Douglass and others are trying to convince Lincoln and the Republicans to begin recruiting black soldiers in the United States Army. And one of the arguments it seems they're making is they're sort of trying to push Lincoln by saying, look, if you don't recruit these men, then more of them are going to end up in the Confederate Army. In fact, some of them are already serving uh, in the Confederate Army. So I think there's a political component to some of these accounts. But in other accounts, I think these, I think these observations are, you know, it, it's what they see. They, they in fact, did see you know, large numbers of black men in Confederate ranks doing all kinds of, uh, jobs, um, constructing earthworks, moving artillery into place. Um, again, that tells you something about the importance of enslaved labor to the Confederate military. Um, but you won't find any accounts confirming that these men are functioning as soldiers in the Confederacy. In fact, you find them, uh, denying Northern accounts when they get word that, um, that there are newspaper accounts uh, claiming the Confederacy is recruiting black soldiers, Uh, they're offended by the idea. I mean, because, of course, they understand what they're fighting for is the preservation of slavery itself, and so recruiting them as soldiers would certainly, in their minds, have undercut that goal.
1: Now, they do ultimately give way on that point, uh, just that we know to be the very end of the war. Uh, How does that come about then, Then this idea that the Confederate government, in its death throes, agrees that they will, in fact, recruit Confederate uh, will yeah.
4: recruit enslaved men to fight. Well, it only comes about after a very uh, public and very divisive debate throughout the Confederacy, throughout most of 1864 and early 1865, over, over whether to enlist uh, uh, slaves as soldiers. And I, you know, the, the debate—it's a wonderful debate if you really want to understand how deeply, how closely. Um, you know, connected or, or reliant the, the Confederacy is to the preservation of slavery. This debate really sort of nails that because they are very clear about what's at stake if they recruit these men as soldiers, right? Many of them understand that they will have undercut the very purpose of the Confederacy. And, and these are men in the ranks as well. Entire regiments issue statements uh, on whether or not they want to recruit slaves as soldiers. And what's fascinating to me is that in 10 plus years of research, no one in this debate, regardless of their position, ever once mentioned that black men were already serving as soldiers in the Confederate Army. I, I, I have yet to find a single account, um, you know, sort of you know, making that specific point. And as you pointed out, it's only in the middle of March that the Confederate Congress barely passed legislation allowing for the recruitment of slaves as soldiers, but of course, Ah, uh, the war ends just a few short weeks later, and um, a few you know maybe a company is recruited in Richmond. Um, they may have paraded down Broad Street. Uh, it's unlikely they were given guns, uh, which said something about how much trust was placed in them. And the war ended before they had any chance of uh, demonstrating their prowess on the battlefield.
1: and you make an interesting point that the actual uh, regulation. Admitting these men into the army, said they would they would accept free African Americans or uh, people who had already been freed by their masters. So they're not even then they're not actually recruiting any slaves at all. They're 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 former
4: slaves, and Uh, and they're acknowledging in a sense that you know that slaves really aren't as loyal as they perhaps would would have liked them to be to the Confederacy. In other words, you had to free them uh, to gain their service. Now, the question
1: of loyalty comes up in – you quote a number of loyalty narratives, I'll call them, where one of these body servants goes to war with his master, who is then – Wounded or killed in battle, and the enslaved servant bravely rushes maybe under enemy fire, maybe through the wreckage of the battlefield yeah. to retrieve the master and bring him back and either nurse him to health or bring the body back home yeah. uh, so there there are a lot of these stories of loyalty when I was in graduate school uh, a, a project was offered to me of a set of letters from a family in Mississippi. Uh, which I read through uh, to, to maybe work these into an article, and they told exactly mm-hmm. one of these stories, and it was a cherished family story among this this white Mississippi family about how their yeah. uh, ancestor had been had been brought home by the loyal slave. Uh, I didn't I didn't do the article, um, <laughs> but how? But what does that tell us that these these black Servants were at least willing to carry carry out
4: these apparently loyal acts. Yeah, I think certainly from the perspective of the families of the officer, they see this through the lens of a, a sort of a paternalistic lens, right? That this is confirmation uh, that the that their enslaved that the body servant uh, in the end did remain loyal. So it's a self serving narrative uh, to, to a great extent, and I think what again, what most people, especially people who have an agenda, um, you know, in some kind of embrace of the lost cause today, what they tend to overlook is the fact that we rarely get the perspective of of the enslaved individual. Um, And Silas is a wonderful example of this, because, of course, you know, Andrew was wounded in 1863, and Silas escorted him home back to West Point, Mississippi. And so, of course, for many people, that confirms his loyalty, that confirms the broader lost cause narrative, but what's often left out is the fact that Silas has a wife back home. He has a newborn child that he hasn't seen. Uh, and so I think we tend to downplay, if not just completely push aside, uh, the fact that this was a complex decision. This was a difficult decision as to what to do if a master is wounded or, you know, in, in other cases dies on the battlefield. Um, what were the real alternatives? Um, And so I think we tend to um, we tend to sort of interpret it in a way that's going to uh, confirm our our prior assumptions. And I think that's uh, that's obviously problematic. At at the same time, I do want to make this point that it it is hard not to be moved by some of the accounts. Um, And again, I'm talking about officer accounts of the relationship Mm -hmm. with their with their body servants. I, I certainly would not want to characterize these relationships as friendships, but we're talking about two people that are away from their respective families. They're spending significant significant time away from home. Uh, they experience some of the same hardships, uh, and especially you know many of them experience disease as well, and it's hard not to acknowledge in some of these cases that there may have been other regarding feelings between. Uh, the two parties again. That's not to say that they were friends. I don't want to mischaracterize the relationship, uh, but certainly this environment, the environment of war, and all of the uncertainties of war, uh, may have brought both parties closer together. But I, again, I want to make sure I'm I'm cautious here, and I was trying to in the sure. book as well.
1: No, I, I think that succeeds. I'm. It's impossible to project ourselves into the minds of either silas or andrew or any of these characters but if if i were at the front and uh because the officer i was accompanying was now wounded i had the option to have him sent home then what do i do stay at the front serve someone else i don't know what what, yeah uh hey i can leave the front line go back where there's Three square meals a day in my own bed and my family
4: uh, yep. I just take the officer home sign me up um, right and, and some of these men you know, these some of these um, body servants do run off and you <laughs> know, these are extremely difficult moments for their for their masters because in in some cases they, they they're wondering w- what happened uh, why is you know <laughs> how do you explain this apparent act of disloyalty and so there are a couple of examples i provide in the book where you know these officers these confederate officers spend you know weeks writing letters home trying to you know any way to explain why their enslaved the their body servant has run off and uh, they can never acknowledge that perhaps he wanted his freedom right so it, it you know th- these crisis moments also reveal um the the assumptions that, you know, many of these Confederate officers go into war with in terms of you know their assumptions about the loyalty of their slaves. I mean the <laughs> war <is> a... <laughs> slavery we, we tend to think of slavery as unraveling on the home front. His friends have done a lot of great work on that. But one of the <laughs> things I found interesting is the way in which slavery unravels in the army itself
1: over the course of the war. It, 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 it makes sense as these, these people take advantage of the, the chaos that war presents. Yeah, We're going to exactly. take another short break. We'll come right back. We'll talk some more with Kevin M. Levin, author of Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming
0: live the leader in internet talk radio voice
2: attention if you're a parent educator social worker or civic or religious leader the most important program you'll hear this week is exploited
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kevin M. Levin, author of Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. We've been talking about the prevalence of African-American men accompanying Confederate armies as uh, camp slaves, uh, Kevin as you call them. Uh, They're there not of their own free will, but because their owners have gone to war. Uh, Sometimes they come home with them, sometimes not. And I think you make a convincing case that nobody at the time was under any illusion that any of these men were soldiers, were freely enlisted, were uh, fought side by side in the firing line uh, as armed uh, free men. This wasn't okay. what they were doing, but uh, and and likewise in the years after the war, you have a very interesting chapter on the reunions of Confederate veterans mm-hmm. and how welcome uh, the ex-camp slaves were at these reunions. Mm-hmm. But again, it's very clear they're in the role of camp slaves. Yeah. This I want. I want to get to this because it's really the heart of of why we need this book. Uh, at some point, this changes the, yeah. the the idea that there are actually were not just one or two, but ten thousand or thirty thousand or sixty-five <laughs> thousand right. uh, some you yeah. know absurd numbers of, of black yeah. Confederate soldiers. Does you know well, where does it come from?
4: Yeah, so so there's actually a a, a historical marker that uh, an SCV camp in Paducah, Kentucky. Recently put up, and uh, they actually have on the marker. It's, a, it's an honor of Black Confederates, and they actually mm. say at the anywhere between sixty and ninety thousand. It actually says that on the marker Ninety thousand. So wow! So it's, it's just bizarre. Yeah, you know, I think most people are going to be surprised at how late in the game um, these references to Black Confederate soldiers begin to appear, because it's not until the mid nineteen seventies, as far as I can tell. Um, you know that we begin to to hear talk about not not black slaves or, or body servants, but black soldiers. And not, no surprise, it, it it begins to come out of um, you know son, sons of Confederate veterans, and they're responding to a gradual shift in the nineteen seventies coming out of the civil rights movement, um, where we're talking more and more about some of the tougher questions about slavery, about emancipation, and more specifically about the presence of roughly 180,000 Black Union soldiers uh, that fought in the Civil War. And I think for some in the SCV, they end up feeling defensive. In other words, for much of the 20th century, they had been able to celebrate their Confederate ancestors without having to answer for the problem of of slavery and, and the Confederacy. Uh, but by the 1970s, that's no longer the case. And so I think as a way to counter the growing talk about Black Union soldiers, they want to be able to say um, that they also have their Black Confederate soldiers. And in doing so, and making those appeals or those references, they're able to, in their mind, balance the moral scales. In other words, they, they no longer have to look like the bad guys that they were defending slavery. And, and the Confederacy ends up, uh, and this is sort of absurd, of course, but the Confederacy ends up looking like it's part of some Uh, experiment in civil rights, because many people today will say, well, black soldiers in the United States fought in segregated regiments, but in the Confederacy, they fought in integrated regiments, and so it makes the Confederacy seem a bit further down that sort of civil rights path. (laughs) Sorry, I can't help but (laughs) chuckle. It it
1: is, it's sort of a bizarro universe where the the nation proto-nation for which slavery was the cornerstone now becomes mm-hmm. uh, a model of civil rights. But this, this yeah. raises the question, how, uh, how successful is this effort? Um, you, you suggest it starts in the 1970s, 1980s, we start yeah. to see it. Um, who, who's, uh, how does it get promoted?
4: Uh, yeah, I think early on it's, it's, it's confined to a relatively small group. Uh, I think it's confined mainly to, you know, groups like the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, you know, I spent a good deal of time going through, you know, UDC publications, and especially Confederate Veteran in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. And you find, you know, plenty of articles about black Confederates, you know, during that period, especially responding to, you know, movies like Glory, Ken Burns's Civil War. Um, but it's really the Internet that gives this a, a, a sort of a new life. Right. Uh, and that's because of course on the internet, anyone can, you know, everyone is his or her own historian and anyone can start a blog, create a website, uh, start a Facebook page. Uh, so you can, you can engage in social media. Um, and there are no gatekeepers as we mentioned uh, earlier in the show. And, and you, know, you can say whatever you want. And if you are not, you know, sufficiently familiar with the relevant history, and I think even more the case, if you're not really sort of thinking critically about how to search information online and assess information online, uh, you can land in all kinds of trouble. And I think that is that is what's happened in the last, uh, you know, the last 20 years. It's really the Internet that has created this problem.
1: So you point out that it's not usually doctored evidence, there's a, a famous photograph of a Union yeah. regiment that has been doctored to appear to be yeah the Confederate Louisiana regiment
4: Native Guard photograph yeah
1: yeah but but for the most part it's it's not so much uh, making up new evidence it's just taking it out of context
4: uh, that's right that's an me. important point yeah I, I completely agree and so you'll find for example the photograph of Silas and Andrew on literally mm-hmm. hundreds of websites and you, know, you can imagine all kinds of uh, you know bizarre things that people are saying about that photograph. Um, photographs of the famous Confederate monument in Arlington National Cemetery uh, that was dedicated in 1914, which includes uh, the image of what appears to be a black man in uniform marching off with Confederate soldiers. And so, of course, people sort of making the assumption that even in 1914, we knew about black soldiers. But if you read the UDC's own history of that monument, you would see very clearly uh, that he was a uniformed body servant. Um, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a Wild West show, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, on the Internet. And, um, you know, back in 2010 in Virginia, uh, a, a history textbook was issued to all fourth graders. And it just so happened that a professor at William & Mary had a daughter in the fourth grade, and she wanted to know what the book had, was saying about the Civil War. And she opened it up and found uh, references to thousands of black soldiers uh, fighting with Stonewall Jackson in 1862, and when this story, you know, hit the uh, the media, they asked the author, where, "Where did you come across this information?" And of course, she said, "I googled it." So and you get a sense of um, just how prob- problematic this is.
1: Now, you raise some interesting uh, uh, issues in this this ongoing battle, this this really uh, public relations battle. Between those who who are promoting the lost cause vision, you note that there are mm-hmm. a, a small but highly visible number of African American uh, yeah. publicists today who who argue
4: that there were black soldiers. Where does that come from? Yeah, and I you know I tried to be very careful um, with this part of the the book. Um, it's a small, relatively small group of African Americans that have. For any number of re- reasons, have come to embrace this narrative. Um, one of the best examples is um, the descendants of, of Silas Chandler um, have, but were for a long time split over this story because a number of the family members uh, believed that uh, Silas had fought as a soldier. And when you listen to them, you know, they were, I think, impressed with the idea of celebrating an ancestor as a soldier, as someone brave, Uh, for the first time not having to talk about their ancestors as slaves, but as brave men in the heat of battle. Um, And that was also true, I think, for the daughter of Weary Clyburn, who I talk about in the book, um, who at one point wanted to learn about her father and uh, somehow came across or was introduced to the Sons of Confederate Veterans in North Carolina and they were more than happy to, um, to introduce her to their preferred narrative. And um, they maintained a very close relationship up until her death in 2014. In fact, when she died, uh, the SCV held a funeral, a military style funeral for her, uh, for Maddie Clyburn Rice. And um, again, you get signs of or indications that they just they were attracted to this idea of celebrating their ancestor. Um, as a brave, as a brave soldier, um, they were sort of, they were fine with the idea of a group like the SCV wanting to honor, uh, their ancestor. Others seemed to embrace it for political reasons. Um, H.K. Egerton, for example, in North Carolina, who, uh, former NAACP president, who is now the darling of the Sons of Confederate veterans, best known for marching across the South in a Confederate uniform, waving a Confederate flag. You know he's he's, uh, he's he's eccentric, but I think at the root of his view, um, I think he finds attractive the idea of there being sort of peaceful race relations uh, at some time in the past, and perhaps that is uh, a way of dealing with the racial divide in 2019. So there's also a political element, um, I think, in in some of these cases.
1: So does so this myth. Which you quite thoroughly debunk here, and which the uh, the blurbs on the back of the book are are rather more direct than the ones we normally see. Um, mm. uh, readers will now have a rigorous and trustworthy resource uh, to dismantle this dangerous and corrosive distortion of history, uh, referring to the lost cause myth. Um, yeah, uh, and the. Uh, so you've got this um problem uh that that no no one in the academic world endorses. no one thinks that, that there were large numbers of, right. of black confederate soldiers. Do you ever right. get just just weary of of fighting this battle, no matter how much evidence you you provide it doesn't go away uh,
4: yes and no um I think now with the book being published i I'm happy to do these kinds of interviews um, <laughs> because there is interest uh-huh. in the book, but I think it's, 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 it's sort of a relief that I can move forward, knowing that for those people who are interested in learning a bit more about the relevant history, both the history of the war uh, and the involvement of body servants and impressed slaves and the evolution of the myth, the book is there for them i't I, I have I'm under no illusions that I am going to convince a large swath of the devoted, what's left of, of, um, of of those, you know, people who are still, uh, who still embrace the lost cause. I'm under no illusion that I'm going to convince any, any of them, because I think what they're dealing with is a, is something other than a kind of, um, intellectual relationship with the past. It's much more emotional. And and I don't, that's not my, my responsibility. I mean, that, you know, I'm here to serve those people who are, really interested in, in, in serious history, what I hope is serious history. Um, but yeah, um, it, it, it was, um, a drain. And I, and I think for that reason, I did push the book aside at, at different points, but, um, I'm glad I, I, you know, I got back in the saddle and, and was able to crank it out. And now I can move on to other subjects.
1: (laughs) Well, it it will be a useful resource to us all. The, um, the idea that you point out there there are not that many true believers in this myth still um yeah and in that sense uh well if if you'd asked me 10 years ago will we see the confederate flag come down from south carolina state house in our right. lifetime i would have said no i don't i don't know when it's going right. to happen but not soon yeah and uh you know the Dylan roof murders, the charlottesville yeah. uh Rioting, and so on. Suddenly, in in a remarkably short span of time, there has really been a sea change in
4: public attitude. Absolutely,
1: um, is the truth finally setting us free?
4: Um, I don't know if I want to go if I want to go that far. I do think that what the last few years have certainly um, revealed is that the lost cause as the dominant narrative of our Civil War memory, um, that is lost. That's that's a dead cause. Um, I don't think we can expect ever to return to a point where, um, you know, cities are sort of um, actively embracing um, or commemorating the, the Confederacy um, in the form of various proclamations. Yeah, we still see that, uh, but there's mm-hmm. been so much controversy on that front as well over the last few years. Um, but it seems to me that we are we haven't seen the end of the of the monument removals. I think that's certainly the case. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in Virginia uh, given the recent election and, and the opportunity perhaps to overturn uh, legislation on that front that bans our communities from removing these monuments and memorials. So I don't think we've seen the end of it. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see you know especially among you know each generation that's learning a very different narrative of the war growing up in secondary school, et cetera, I think that's going to continue to have an impact.
1: I I think that's absolutely right. And those future generations will have this resource, the book Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, by our guest tonight, Kevin M. Levin. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. We're already out of time, but uh, I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks so much, Jerry. I really enjoyed it. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of this book, and as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank uh-huh. you.